Um, so if you want to grab your Bibles out, Isaiah 40, um, 1 to 11 is what we're going to be reading through to this morning. Isaiah 40, 1 to 11. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for the Lord. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged place a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed to all the people, and all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken, a voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like flowers in the field. The grass withers and the flowers fail because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flocks like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arm and carries them closer to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Thanks, Graham. All right. Is that in the right spot? For the camera. Hello, if you're at home. Sorry I couldn't see you today. Another time. Uh, it's been quite a year, hasn't it, as we said before. Uh, for us at the college, uh, we couldn't have any students in. And, and that's, that, there's a loss to that. Like, I'd like to see the students and get to know them. But uh, we can do, still do things on Zoom. So that was pretty good. Uh, I'm grateful for that. And my wife, uh, Alison, she works as a social worker with adult survivors of child sexual assault which is pretty intense, but uh, you know, she did the best she could over Zoom and, and a lot of people were helped. So we were really grateful that we both had jobs that we could do at home. That, so it's not what we wanted, wanted to do, but it, we did what we could. Uh, other people, I think it's been a lot harder, really. Uh, the lady down the street from us, uh, she's a hairdresser. It's pretty hard to do haircuts in Zoom, isn't it? <laughs> they haven't, haven't worked out how to do that yet, but if you know how to do that, I've, I'm ready to invest because that seems like a good idea to me. Uh, so for some people it's been okay, for some people it's been pretty hard. If you've got friends or relatives overseas, then you know it's been even harder for them, hasn't it? Really difficult in some countries. One of our students, she's here studying, all her family's somewhere else. Uh, she was looking pretty tired one day, I said, What's, what have you been up to? Oh, I'm trying to organise food for my village, There's, nobody can work and we've got 400 people to feed. And I just said, oh, I'll go home and do that. I'll have a lecture another day. Catch up on the video. It's been really, really tough. It was hard for her. 
And I think at, at the end of the year, there might be more than a few people wondering, where is God in all of this? You know, has God forgotten us? Does he care about us? Can we trust him anymore? Uh, does God really know what's going on? Does he, does he actually understand the situation that we're in? Is he able to do anything? Maybe it's too much for him now. and He's kind of thrown up his hands and walked off. Or maybe he doesn't even want to help us anymore. Maybe he's just had a, had a gutful of our sin. He's had enough and he's just kind of wiped his hands and walked away. Does he really want to help us? So those are the questions that we're looking at today from the book of Isaiah. Uh, does God know what is happening? Is he able to do anything about it? And does he want to do anything about it? Uh, James, when he, was, when he asked me to preach, he said, why don't you preach on Isaiah? And then he said, by the way, I won't be there. Now, that either means that he's really confident it's going to be good or he knows it's going to be a dumpster fire and he's trying to you know, get out of town before it explodes. One or the other of those that will happen this morning, at the end you can decide what, which one it was. So we're doing Isaiah, uh, just to explain a little bit about Isaiah and the time that he lived. So he lived about 700 years, eight centuries before Jesus. So that's way, way, way back, long before Jesus was around. What was happening for him at that time? Well, on the outside for Isaiah, everything was looking good in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, religious services were well attended. The temple was busy, people coming and going. Uh, the, the economy was up. You know, it was a boom time for everybody. So on the outside, everything looked great. But on the inside, it was not so good. Uh, the religion was really just a, a show. It was a sham. It was a, a performance for many people. And all that economy was actually based on oppression and ripping people off. Uh, people's hearts were far from God. They were getting into idolatry and all sorts of other things. So on the surface, everything looked great. Couldn't be better. But underneath, everything was actually rotten and at the point of collapsing. So when God spoke to Isaiah... He spoke to him about what was soon to come for Isaiah and his friends. Now, now Isaiah, so he, I can go up to this red mark. They tell me he's a clever red mark. So imagine Isaiah's here and he's looking forward. God's helping him to see what's coming. Now, some of what Isaiah sees is actually not far in the future for him. That's the exile. God's going to judge his people. They're going to go and spend 70 years in Babylon. So Isaiah can see that's about to come. And he can see that's going to happen and that, that it will finish. If there'll be an end, they'll return. So some of it he can see in this near future. Some of it's a lot further in the future. Some of the things Isaiah talks about are to do with Jesus' birth, to do with Christmas. I think that's why the passage was chosen. So that's in the future for Isaiah, but a lot further down the track. Now, we're, we're much further along the track than that. This is not to scale, by the way. If I was clever, I would have marked it out, wouldn't I? But I'm not that clever. So we're much further down the track. We look back at some of the things that Isaiah looked forward to. But actually, I think some of the things that Isaiah looked forward to are still in our future as well, when Jesus returns. So to get the picture of how Isaiah's prophecies work, it's all in the future for him. It's all in the future for him. But some of it's in the past for us. And so that's what we're looking at today. I think there are, it's a bit like a mountain range, really. You know, when you go to the mountains, you see them sort of stacked up behind each other. You can't quite tell how far apart they are or how big the valley or deep the valley is. Well, I think that's what Isaiah is seeing. He's seeing a few events that are all in the future for him, some real highlights of the mountain peaks, but not always obvious how big the valleys were. 
Uh, we, of course, know that some of those things are in our past and we'll, we'll get to those as we go along. So that's how prophecy works and where Isaiah is, uh, 700 years more or less before Jesus was born. Now we've come into this part of the Bible, Isaiah 40. There's no prize for guessing there are previously 39 chapters of Isaiah. So that's pretty, pretty easy to work out. If you read through those, or if you, even if you flick through them now, you'll see that they're not really very happy. Mostly it's about judgment, the judgment that's very soon going to come on the people. They think everything's fine, everything looks fine, but it's rotten and it's going to collapse. And Isaiah can see that. So Isaiah's looking at the things that are going to happen in the near future around him. And if you flick through and you look at the chapter headings, you'll see things like a prophecy against Babylon, a prophecy against the Philistines, a prophecy against Damascus, against Cush, pretty much every country that you could put on the map at that time. Devastation to the earth is another happy chapter. There's a chapter, woe to David's city, woe to the obstinate nation. That's chapter 30. Woe, to, woe there's just, it's woe for everybody. 39 chapters of disaster after disaster after disaster. There's plenty of, plenty of sadness to go around, plenty of judgment. It's, that's all it is for 39 chapters, really. There's a couple of breaks here or there where he pauses for breath. But other than that, it's 39 chapters of unrelenting judgment. And so the way I think that feels is, uh, have you ever been to the beach and you know, you're swimming away happily at the beach and then a larger wave comes and it begins to suck the water out? And so you get sucked out in this water. The further you go, the stronger it sucks. And then at the same time, the wave is getting higher and higher. So I used to own a surf ski. That's a, that's a surfboard for people who like to sit down. I don't even know if they make them anymore. But th this is what my experience, I was never very good at it. So you'd be paddling around and the wave would come and it would suck you out. And as you get closer to the wave, it gets bigger and bigger. And you think, how big will this get? And is this going to hurt? And the answer is really big and yes. So that's where we're at at the end of chapter 39. 39 chapters of the disasters that's going to take, overtake everybody because of their disobedience. And we get to chapter 39 and that's that point where the top of the wave just begins to curl over and you know that it's going to break. That's that point. What happens in chapter 39, it's a bit of an unusual chapter in that we move from prophecy to a story, something that happens, rather than just talking about what's going to happen. And what happens is the king of Israel, a guy called Hezekiah, invites envoys from Babylon to come and visit him and check out, well, everything he's got. That He shows them all his uh, treasury, he shows them all his military technology. Now that might seem like an innocent thing to do until you realise that Babylon's the enemy. <laughs> That's not very smart. To do that sort of thing. I don't think we should mention any countries this morning because we never know who's listening but you know you don't generally invite people who are a threat to come and inspect your financial reserves and your military technology. That's a bad idea. Hezekiah does that because he's actually he's full of pride. And uh, so chapter 39, uh, Isaiah the prophet says to Hezekiah the king, hear the word of the Lord Almighty, the time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up till this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left. Your own descendants, your own flesh and blood, they will be taken away and will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So you're going to come to an end. Your family line's going to come to an end. All this is going to go. It's all going to be destroyed. 
That's the message that Isaiah gives to Hezekiah, the king, the ruler of the people. And Hezekiah's response is, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good, he said, because he thought this will not happen in my lifetime. That's not the answer that we were looking for at that point. <laughs> That's like being out to sea, the waves breaking, the waves about to, to crash onto you and the lifeguard says, oh, that's fine. They'll drown on the next person's shift and he's gone home. I mean, we're hoping at this point from Hezekiah, the king, as the leader of God's people, the representative of God's people for, for something like, you know, a bit of repentance maybe, a, a sorry, and even an oops, my bad would be something better than, oh, yeah, that's fine. That'll happen to someone else. So the waves of, of God's judgment is about to break. Yes, people are going to get pounded. And the lifeguard has said, oh, they can drown on somebody else's shift. It, it, uh, what do you say? It's a disaster. It's about to strike and, and nobody seems to care. So it's into that situation that Isaiah 40 comes, the next chapter. Does God really care? The king doesn't care. The king's not going to do anything. Does God even care? Does he know? Does he want to help us? I think those are the questions that were in people's minds when we get to chapter 40. And chapter 40 starts off with comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. So somebody, something, someones, plural, are encouraged to comfort God's people to speak tenderly to her, to say that her hard service is being completed. I think at that point, Isaiah is seeing from where he's standing to the end of the exile. We've had the judgment, we know that, that's 39 chapters of that. At this point, now he's looking past that. God's enabling him to see that a time will come when their sins will have been dealt with, when her hard service, Jerusalem, and the people in it really, when their hard service has been completed. God wants to comfort his people. He longs to do that. He's going to do that at the right time. The word here, comfort, for us it's kind of comfortable sneakers, maybe. Not quite like that. This word is more like strengthen, you know, cause someone to be strong, to stand up, that sort of thing. That's what needs to happen and that's what Isaiah wants. The people who are willing to listen to him, if anybody in Jerusalem was willing to listen, to brace themselves for the judgment that's coming, knowing that it will finish. There will be a time when it's completed, a time when sin has been paid for. She is received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. Now, that might be a way of saying more than enough. You know, that's more than enough. Or it might be, the word is actually used also of a piece of cloth folded exactly in half. So it's either enough, perfectly enough, or more than enough. You know, it's going to be dealt with. It's going to be done. It's going to be finished. So this great judgment of wave will break and yes, you'll go under and yes, it's going to hurt, but you will come out the other side. God is saying to people, there will come a time when sins are paid for. So Isaiah is wanting those who are faithful in Jerusalem, a handful maybe, a remnant, the leftovers as it were, to stand firm and to trust God, knowing that the coming judgment won't last forever. Now, from where we stand, looking back at what Isaiah saw in his future, we actually know how that works because we know how sins are paid for. 
you know, the, the judgment they received was, uh, I mean, appropriate for that, but it didn't actually help them overcome the problem of sin. They just fell back into sin again after they came back, after the exile was finished and they returned to the land. It didn't really provide a permanent solution to the problem. How is it that sins are really going to be dealt with? How is it they're really going to be paid for? Well, you and I know that. You and I know the answer to that because we know that Jesus did that. That, that we can't atone for our sins. We can't pay for our sins. He's the one. His death pays for our sins, all of them, completely, fully, totally. We, looking back now at what Isaiah saw in his future, understand that Jesus' death pays for our sins and that no amount of trying on our behalf, no amount of screwing up our courage was going to make any difference. Jesus' death pays for our sins. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was getting a haircut. I have one once a year, whether I need it or not. Uh, during lockdown, my kids cut my hair. Several times that worked well. Uh, but anyway, it was nice to get a proper one for, for a change. So I'm talking to the guy, you know, you're chatting, what do you do, what do you do? So I, what do I do? I teach the Bible. Oh, that's interesting. This is chopping away. And, and he said, I think all religions are basically the same. They're all telling people to be good. And I thought, oh. Oh, no, I don't think that, that's quite right. But what do I say? I mean, the guy literally at this point has a razor to my throat. I do not want to anger this man or disappoint him or startle him even in any way. So I said, oh, well, I think they're similar, but they're not quite the same. And so I was thinking about it later on. How do I agree politely with a man who literally has a razor to my throat, but disagree at the same time? So what I've worked out now, next time I'm getting my hair cut, is if maybe slightly true that they're similar if you sort of hold it the more at arm's length and close your good eye and squint they're kind of the same that the big difference is not about that they all tell you to be good the big difference comes when you realize that you can't be <laughs> you can't be good that's when they separate because everybody else says be good if you're not good be gooder try harder more prayers, more sacrifices, more pilgrimages, more meditation. Try harder, be better. That's what everybody else says. But what we believe as Christians is actually Jesus has been good for us. I know I'm not good enough. I know that. I think many of you probably know that too. But it's not about me trying harder or being better. It's about Jesus and his death paying for my sin and dealing with it. That's, that's the difference. That's where there's a great fork in the road. And maybe, maybe, okay, if you hold them at arm's length and squint, they kind of all tell you to be good, maybe. But the big difference is what happens when you're not good. That's where there's a fork in the road. And that's where we believe and we admit that we're not good. But we all point to Jesus who is good enough, more than good enough for all of us and his death pays for all of our sins it's through his death and his resurrection that at the hard service is done that sins are atoned for no amount of stuff i could do would ever help jesus death is enough so does god care from isaiah and from his perspective yes god longs to comfort his people he longs to be with them he wants to speak tenderly to them Isaiah is saying that as he's looking at the disaster that's looming over them. Us looking back and knowing a little bit more than him, just 
because we were born at a different time, really. How much does God care? God loves us enough to send his son, Christmas, to send his son to die for us. Does God care? Yes. Yes, he couldn't show his care more. He cares enough to send Jesus to die for us. Now, there's another voice. There's a couple of voices in this chapter. We might have picked it up as Corey read them out. It's kind of like a stage play almost. You know, the instruction says, cry out. And the first voice cries out. Here's the second voice from verse 3 onwards. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. This is the second voice. So something is going to happen. Get ready, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord. There's going to be a highway in the desert. Make a straight road in the desert. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The rough ground shall become level. So God's going to do something. As Isaiah looks forward to thinking about maybe going into exile, lots of people, and then coming back again. It's a long, they went to Babylon. I don't know if you've ever looked at a map, but it's a long walk from Jerusalem to Babylon. (laughs) It's a long walk. So as he's thinking about that, he's thinking about all the things that will happen. And what he's saying is God is going to come. We will come and go, but God will come to us. Get ready. God is going to do something. God is able. Mountains will be moved if that is required. Valleys will be raised up if that is required. It's all going to happen. God is able. He will. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Now, the glory of the Lord makes a couple of appearances in Christmas carols, doesn't it? It's one of those phrases that we throw around. It's just another way of talking about God, really. It's just another way of talking about God. The glory of the Lord is like, um, it's like the sun and its rays. You know, the sun you can, it gives off rays and you can see the sun because of the rays. That's the glory. That's God. You can't, you can't see the sun without the rays. You can't have the rays without the sun. The same sort of relationship, I think, with God and his glory. It's really another way of talking about him. So he's going to come. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. So things are going to get better. God's glory will be revealed. So what was Isaiah saying to his, the people who were willing to listen to him in Jerusalem? Yep, it's going to get worse, but then after that, we'll see God's glory again. Yes, it's going to be really bad. Everything's going to be destroyed if you read the other 39 chapters. And chapter 39, yes, it's all going to go. But the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Now, that was looking forward, I think, probably Isaiah's thinking after the exile, so 70, 80 years down the track. And if you know the Bible story, you know that's what happened. The Babylonians came, trashed the place, took everybody off as prisoners of war, those who survived. They spent 70-odd years in Babylon, came back again. And I imagine that some of them have maybe remembered or read what Isaiah had said and thought, this is it. This is when we're going to see the glory of the Lord. It didn't quite work out that way. And when they came back from exile, what they found was a city that was in ruins, an economy that was non-existent, and it was not really very glorious at all. And perhaps some of them thought, oh, that's not what I expected. I expected something fantastic, something amazing. Well, actually, that's still to come. But I think they might have faced a sense of disappointment that they had not seen the glory of the Lord. Uh, 
I don't know if you've ever had that experience where something's not quite what it's cracked up to be. Uh, often for me, this is re related to online shopping. So one of my family members bought a pair of shoes, lovely black shoes, with what appeared to be a nice sort of silver stripe down the side. Actually, it's leopard skin. And it's, not, it's kind of a post-punk uh, fluorescent leopard has been skinned for these shoes. Not at all like the, the picture and there's reality, the picture is reality. They're not the same. Not the same. I don't know what to do with these shoes. Do we, do we colour in the, the dead leopard? Do we paint it? I, I don't know. Sure, if you've got any ideas, let me know because you know, I don't want to send them back. It's more money than the shoes cost. Sometimes expectations and reality don't match up. And perhaps some of the people coming back from the exile felt that we were promised the glory of God, but we've just got this big pile of rocks. That's because what Isaiah was seeing with the glory coming, I think, was actually a little bit further down the track. Maybe he didn't realise it, but I think we realise it now. That when Jesus came at Christmas time, that's when the glory of the Lord was revealed. We sing about that in the carols, don't we? The angels, the voices. We see that in his life, the miracles, the power, the teaching, the resurrection from the dead, the transfiguration, so many things. So many ways did he begin to show his glory. All much in the future for Isaiah, but in the past for us. And, and yet we know they're still, still waiting for the glory of the Lord to finally and fully be revealed, aren't we? We're still waiting for Jesus to return. I guess that's kind of off the screen here. It's out there a little bit. But we're still waiting in some ways, in many ways, for the glory of the Lord to be revealed. So yes, God is able. Mountains will be moved. Valleys will be raised up. People will be raised from the dead. God will work. He is powerful. His glory will come. We've seen bits of it. Now, we, we can see that in Jesus, in his life and his death and his resurrection. We've seen bits of it, glimpses, a bit of a preview of coming attraction, as it were. Still we're waiting. Still we're waiting for the final and full revelation of God's glory. So God is able to help. Yes, he is able to help. And then we have a third voice from verse 6. A voice says, cry out. And I said, I said what shall I cry? People are like grass and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. So we lived, uh, we lived for a while in Jordan, just across the river from Israel, the Jordan River. And uh, we lived there studying Arabic. Uh, do I speak Arabic now? I haven't spoken any for 10 years. I've kind of, I'm really good for about three minutes. I'm really good for about three minutes and then I run out. I can't remember anymore after that. So if you want to talk to me later on in Arabic, I'm happy to chat as long as you've only got three minutes. And then you want to go back to English. I tried, but I just nod. Nod me, you know, knowingly, mm, and, but it's all going over my head, so that's okay. So he studied there, uh, learning Arabic before he went to another country, which is another story. In Jordan, it rains occasionally. Mostly it's pretty dry. It's a desert, most of it, most of the time. But about once a year, twice a year, it rains. And when it rains, flowers come out. They spring up out of nowhere. What was just uh, rocks and this really red kind of soil uh, one week it rains for a couple of weeks sometimes it even snows in the winter and then after that little period of time these flowers come out this grass comes from nowhere it just springs up and so we didn't know that was going to happen and someone told us oh the flowers are out and and oh well let's go and see them but we're kind of busy this weekend so maybe we'll make it uh, not next weekend but the weekend after so two weekends later went to see desert all gone, finished, kaput, gone. That, that really does happen. They come up, 
they spring up, there's grass everywhere, there's flowers everywhere, and a week or so later, they're gone again. They've disappeared. It's as if they were never there. You know, we think of the grass like maybe that's like our lawn. I trust that your lawn is not withering away overnight. At least in our place, it rained a fair bit last night, so the lawn was still there this morning when I checked. But this would have been much more meaningful for Isaiah and his friends. Perhaps they all went out to see the flowers at a certain time of year themselves. The grass withers and the flowers fall. It really does happen. But the word of our God endures forever. The word of our God endures forever. So God is willing. He knows what's happening. He wants to help. He's able to help. His promises remain sure. And maybe that was a word for those people coming back from the exile, not too far down the track from Isaiah, thinking, oh, this is not what we thought it would be like. Maybe it was all a bit of a beat up, you know, maybe it was a bit of an internet promotion. Maybe, maybe it's not really going to happen. Can we really trust God's promises? These verses are for them, perhaps. Yes, people are like grass. Yes, they get mown down and they, they're gone. But the word of our God endures forever. Does God really know? Yes, he knows. He knows that we're fallible. He knows that we're ephemeral. He knows that we come and we go. He knows that we're weak. He knows that not just in theory, it's a nice idea, but when you think about Christmas, he knows it in practice. God knows what it's like to live in weakness. He was born as a baby, a helpless baby. He knows what it's like to suffer hunger and thirst and disappointment and even betrayal. Our understanding of God is that through Christ, he knows, in a sense, what it's like to die. He knows what that's like. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our frailties. He knows that we're grass. His word endures forever. His promises remain. Long after you and I have been blown away by the wind, long after our place is forgotten, his word still stands. And so we have a final section of encouragement here from verse 9, perhaps down to verse 11. It all comes together. People are encouraged to keep encouraging each other. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on the high mountain, you who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice and shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Yes, he's going to come. It might seem like a long way away, but it will happen. The sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with his mighty arm. His reward is with him. Yes, he will return. Yes, he will return. The time will come. And there's a beautiful picture of compassion here in the last verse, verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs into his arms and carries them close to his heart he gently leads those that have young so again we finish off as we started with a picture of God's care and his concern his compassion for his people he's not like some drill sergeant he's not entirely like a football coach he's more like a shepherd carrying the lambs leading them gently looking after them and loving them so it's been quite the year <laughs> It's been quite the year. If you're thinking, if you're wondering, can I really trust God? Does he want to help us? Does he know what we're going through? Is he even able to do anything about it? Well, those three questions are answered here in this passage. Does God want to help us? Yes, he longs to comfort his people. He longs to be with them, to lead them as a shepherd, Isaiah is saying. And at Christmas time, we remember, how much does God want to help? He wants to help enough to send his son as a baby 
to send his son to die. That's how much God wants to help us. Is God able to do us? Does he have the power? Yes, he does. Isaiah will tell you, mountains, no problem. Valleys, no problem. Deserts, no problem. God will come. He will return. Now we look back and we can see even more than that, people will be raised from the dead. God's able not just to rearrange the geography, but to rearrange the particles and to bring a person back to life. So yes, God is able. Does God know? Yes, he knows. He understands. He knows that we're flowers, we're grass, we come, we go, a breath, and that's us. And he understands that firsthand. We see that at Christmas time. We're reminded of that. He understands weakness. He understands frailty. He was born as a baby and died as a man. So it has been a hard couple of years and I have no special knowledge about next year either. I don't know what it's going to be like. Time will tell. But whatever it's like, we know that God knows that he's able to help and that he wants to help. Isaiah tells us that. Isaiah saw it all coming. And we've realised that when we look at Jesus as well. He made it sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to meet together today as your people. As we come towards the end of the year, we are conscious of everything that has happened. Uh, some things good, but many have struggled. Many have struggled. And so we ask that you would encourage us and help us to continue to trust in you. To admit our own weakness and to understand that you understand our needs. To look to you as a person who loves us and cares for us, even when it's not always completely obvious. And to trust in your power, that as you brought people from out of the exile and you raised Jesus from the dead, so too you will continue to work in our lives as well. We pray that you would help us to hold on to these promises until the glory of the Lord is finally and fully seen, till Jesus returns and every eye sees him, every tongue confesses that he is Lord. We pray this for his sake. Amen.